my advice is go for it. Like if there's a language you're curious about, go for it and learn it. I mean, there are, even though we keep like focusing on the brain and the early ages of, of life, right? And how powerful that is, because it is, it's like this miraculous thing that happens, but there are studies of people in their 80s who take up a language and do fairly well. They can, you know, go back to Italy and talk to their, you know, family members they haven't ever seen before. Go for it. Like we're never too old, never too old. Yeah, everyone, thank you all for coming. Uh, Cash and I are absolutely excited for this. Uh, we, both of us, uh, share, I think, as does all of you, the, the passion for languages and, and going beyond just like learning a single language, but also looking to, to know how, how it works, right? Like, what's the process? What's within the that we can really learn from and that we can use to um, make our our studies even better and and so today we have with us professor littlefield and professor malhotra and i'd also like to uh, firstly thank professor borns for helping us put this uh and so so yeah uh professors uh would you um, mind giving us a little background, a little context, who you are, and uh, sort of a background on, on expertise. Oh, sure, sure. Um, yeah, so uh, thank you so much for inviting me. I, I think any opportunity I have to talk about language acquisition is just uh, uh, an exciting thing for me, because most people don't think about it very much, although we've all gone through it. So um, yeah, so it's super exciting to be here. Uh, just as a little bit of con, uh, and, and I have to say, I'm so jealous if you grew up in multilingual settings. Uh, I grew up in Idaho, which is very monolingual uh, and very uh, acultural in, in that way, I suppose, or monocultural, I should say. Um, and so I was a rare person who was interested in languages early on, and I took um, French all through junior high, high school, uh, college, and then I had the opportunity to travel to France. And I was so amazed that the two-year-olds could do better than I after eight or 10 years of effortful learning. <laughs> I thought, what is happening to their little brains that they can do this so easily? Um, and then I went into the Peace Corps after I graduated from my undergrad years, and I spent a couple of years in Francophone West Africa, a total killer for my a Parisian French accent, by the way, I kind of tend to sound like a, a, a West African now. Um, and I, I learned uh, Fula uh, through living in a, a small village. Uh, Fula is a West African language. You all probably haven't heard of it unless you've had a class with me. About 40 million native speakers, though, so a healthy uh, uh, language in terms of number of speakers. And I remember, um, and I was just thrown into immersion, right? There was no lessons, no nothing. I was just taking notes as I went around trying to live my life in a a uh, submersive environment. Um, and about two months in, I remember waking up one day, you know, and, and I was just surrounded by this. It was like an ocean of Fula. Uh, and there was one other person in the village who spoke French, right? So it was like pretty isolating. And I remember waking up and thinking, you know, it doesn't sound foreign anymore. And again, I thought, what's happening in my brain to make this happen? So I went into uh, graduate school. I discovered at that point what linguistics was uh, and got a PhD in linguistics. 
And my main area of research was in um, actually in syntax, looking at prepositions, kind of how prepositions are modeled. So prepositions in English are really strange and kind of all over the place. We could definitely talk about those for a long time. Uh, but crucially, I was using language acquisition, first language acquisition data uh, over a long period of time to test syntactic hypotheses about, um, uh, yeah, about how prepositions work. Uh, and so uh, for me, it was a great uh, melding of a couple of my passions there and uh, fun to uh, look at child data. Sorry, that took a little longer than 30 seconds. Let me pass it on. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's actually super, super cool. Do you, by the way, still speak the, that, um, the, uh, Fula? African, yeah, Fula. Yeah. So it's funny. Um, definitely not as conversational as I was. I, I think I was pretty fluent and ironically, the dialect that I learned was, uh, kind of a backwoods, uh, dialect. So, uh, you know, kind of every time I was in the capital city, uh, people would just start cracking up when I would say something because A, they didn't expect a European or, you know, kind of an American, a Caucasian American to be speaking in Fula. And then I had this just like hillbilly dialect. Uh, so it's it's pretty rough now. Um, but I was speaking to uh, somebody on the phone the other day in Fula and uh, or they were it was wow. in French, actually. Uh, and they broke into Fula and I was like, okay, I, I can say a few things and I understand a lot more. So I think it would come back, but mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's rough and I don't have any opportunities to practice here. So mm -hmm. true. That's, that's super cool. Thank you, uh, Professor Malhotra. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up in India, uh, Delhi. So I also am from a multilingual, multi-dialectal family where, you know, right from birth, I was like, okay, people talk differently all around me. So, um, and, and, then, and then Delhi is a place where uh, you do encounter people speaking in different languages all the time. So even growing up and then I was in an international school where I was exposed to more languages. So I've always been like, you know, surrounded by languages and I've been very fortunate for that. Uh, and then, um, like Professor Littlefield, I picked linguistics and I didn't know anything about linguistics before my grad school. So I did my PhD in linguistics from um, University of Maryland. And there, um, because, because of the love that I had for this cross-linguistic variation, I looked at syntactic patterns in cross-linguistic stuff. So I compared lots of languages, looked and tried to find universal patterns in there. So uh, this, this has been, you know, my area of love that, you know, I like to look at variations and try to understand them. So right now I am very interested in second language acquisition as well as bilingualism. Um, so bilingualism is what, you know, I do more because I myself grew up, you know, speaking three languages at the same time. So um, bilingualism and second language acquisition is something I, I definitely am very interested in right now. So um, at home, I have two kids who uh, are kind of pretty good at speaking two languages. So we have lots of code mixing happening at home. Uh, I am exposing them to you know, a couple of more languages. So, you know, we, we have a pretty cross-linguistic stuff happening at home too. So that's the fun part. Yeah, thank you. I, I had no idea that, you know, it's so great to hear about your research because we don't connect as much as we should with, with our two departments. I'm Stacey Katz-Borns, I'm the director of the World Languages Center. I also have a background in theoretical linguistics. Um, I did syntax and pragmatics at the University of Texas. Um, I worked on the grammar of spoken French. Um, French, the spoken French language and written French languages have diverged so much now that 
a lot of linguists think that they might not even be the same language anymore. Um, it's really very interesting to see how languages adapt to their environment. Um, and so that's something I've, I've focused on. But uh, even though my training is very theoretical, um, when I got out of graduate school, I was really very, very interested in language pedagogy. And so I sort of shifted and that's how I ended up in the World Languages Center instead of in the linguistics department. Um, I publish a lot about French grammar, um, about um, how languages are taught today as opposed to how they might've been taught before. What are the newest you know, findings and how do, how do we make the connection between what people are doing in second language acquisition and applying that to the classroom? Because it's, it's sort of ironic, right? We work in linguistics and it's all about communication but we don't always communicate well with each other. And that's, that's an issue that, that we've you know, thought about a lot and um, trying to make those connections. And as my colleagues who are here from more languages can attest to, I mean, we're really, really trying to base our classes on the newest, most informed perspectives on teaching languages. So very happy to be here. So thank you so much for inviting us. Of course, thank you. Thank you for all uh, three of you professors. I think now, Cash, do you want to start us off with the First question, I think it's a, probably a, a good first question for this to open everything up. Yeah, very open-ended question, but it is, um, what is the difference between first, second, and third language acquisition and learning? Okay, I'll just give my, my two cents, but please build on it. Um, so again, I'm, I'm like, first language acquisition is really my thing. Uh, so I think, I think the big issues that come to my mind, and, and I guess I would say, uh, what I'm going to talk about a little bit is like first language versus other language learning, right? So later language learning, uh, second, third, fourth, whatever it happens to be. Um, but the real differences between first language and other language learning um, is kind of an issue of prior knowledge uh, and then another issue of maybe motivation. Uh, so as a first language learner, and, and this would be true too, whether you're bilingually raised, multilingually raised, or monolingually raised, um, but as a baby, your brain is primed to be a uh, learning language, right? Uh, and so you don't have a choice. Like no baby at age one month says, I'm just not going to speak my language. I'm going to speak another language or conversely, like I just will be mute. I am not going to speak, right? And obviously some children are unfortunately mute, but it's not their choice, right? Something else has happened uh, usually with the brain. Um, and so that whole like issue uh, of being a second or a third or fourth language learner, I think uh, a lot of it comes down to motivation. What's your motivation and how strong is that motivation? Um, and as just kind of a, a practical example, again, kind of drawing on my experiences of, of West Africa, I think you guys have like reminded me of all these things. Now I have all these memories there. Um, but I had a, a, a colleague there, another Peace Corps volunteer uh, who who was there in Guinea. And Guinea is like, it's not like uh, Ivory Coast or something where you have a, a very cosmopolitan uh, uh, city and, and culture. Uh, it's it's pretty, pretty isolated. Uh, and he said, you know, the reason I joined Peace Corps was to learn French. <laughs> I just about fell off my seat, right? I'm like, I've been, I've been studying French for like, you know, 10, 12 years at this point. Like you don't go to the heart of West Africa to learn French, right? You go to like, well, France. <laughs> and what do you know, but through his motivation and hard work and hundreds of hours of li listening to, you know, Radio France, he ended up with a Parisian accent. <laughs> and it just cracked me up because I had gone in with like the idealized, you know, taught Parisian accent. I had the same like biases that everybody has. And I just like, 
well, I guess from a, a Parisian French uh, uh, perspective, I like declined in my accent to where, you know, I can hardly use the TV distinction, right? That two vu distinction, because in West Africa, it all gets collapsed into one. And so motivation was really key there. Right? So I think motivation is one, like babies don't need motivation. They just have that. Um, and then the second thing I would say is, is input. Although I think this is somewhat universal and, and, uh, you know, if the other professors can jump in here uh, a bit, that'd be great. But uh, the idea that babies are getting input, uh, well, even, even in utero, right? So we know that as early as uh, five and six months gestation uh, in utero, the baby is listening to language in their environment and taking that in. Uh, and they can actually recognize like uh, strings of language that they've heard before, uh, especially if they've been repeated a couple of times. So, so babies are like taking that all in automatically um, whereas as a second language learner, ah, so a, a benefit uh, for a second language learner is you already have the basis of the first language to draw on. Uh, but then uh, again, kind of thinking about the input, like you need input, right? You're not going to just be necessarily surrounded by it, or at least that was my experience in Idaho. If, you, if you're lucky enough to be, you know, studying in an immersive culture, uh, I guess, well, I think my Fula example isn't great either because I didn't have any support. Like, I think the ideal language learning context is probably that you're immersed, you have like many, many people that you need to talk to, uh, and you're supported by faculty classes that can help you with the kind of nitty gritty. Anyway, that's, that's kind of more generally what I was thinking there. Um, just to add to what Professor Littlefield said, I think age of exposure also plays a very important role. Um, so, uh, you know, as, as a baby, because, you know, as Professor Littlefield said, you know, even before birth, you are already exposed to the thing, right? So, so your brain is kind of accepting data as it's coming in. Um, and and it, even in bilingualism or second language literature, we, you know, sensitivity of age is a very big deal. Um, if you are exposed to two languages at the same time, three languages at the same time, or even four languages at the same time, um, you know, input plus minus, the earlier exposure, the better it is. So you will become more. So even in linguistic literature, we make a big deal about, you know, native speaker or native speaker abilities. And that is that is related to age of exposure. Um, and in, in general, we can, you know, divide this age into different things. So zero to three or births to three is the prime age of learning any language and as many as you want, you know, even if a baby is exposed to technically even 10 languages, the baby can learn all 10 between zero to three. Um, three to seven is also a very good sensitive period. Uh, but if you acquire a language post three years, then it's more like a secondary system as opposed to a primary system that you get from zero to three. Um, and then seven to 10, you know, you are really not acquiring it, as we call it, you are more learning it, you know, and then things become more formalized. So as uh, Professor Littlefield was saying, so informality versus formality is also, you know, starts playing a role there. And post-puberty, it's, it's a very different ballgame altogether. It's just like, you know, and from a cognitive point of view, um, before puberty, it's your left part of the brain that's doing language acquisition. So you're acquiring it as a natural process. Uh, post-puberty, it becomes more like, you know, a memorization problem-solving thing. So your right hemisphere is participating in that, right? It's a very different technique altogether. So uh, just just two more things to what Professor Littlefield said, age of acquisition and the formality. So, um, you know, recently I was reading something which says that um, almost all native languages 
are learned informally. The moment you add formality to it, the language, you know, it kind of loses its naturalness there. So even for a pedagogical point of view, right? I mean, you can you can adapt a very informal setting within the classroom. So uh, something like the, the social cultural learning paradigm of Vygotsky or, or something of that kind, right? Where you can develop a system of more communicative based learning as opposed to you know formally giving them grammar classes or whatever i mean the technique depends on the kind of input you are getting from the students but there are there are other factors which play a very important role so uh, what professor littlefields was saying motivation that means you know how much value you give to the two languages so even if you learn say it's three languages at the same time so i learned three languages at the same time but as i was growing up i realized oh well hindi is what i can speak with my friends more often right so that stayed with me and i feel more comfortable with that but other languages that i picked up as a baby i'm like oh yeah with my grandparents yes but nothing beyond that right so so the valorization that i had of the languages in my head kind of you know help me or in some way kind of you know narrowed the set for me saying these two are very good these are valorized in your brain these two are not so i ended up you know developing all four skills of speaking listening reading writing in three languages but the rest of them is just like oh i can understand most of it you know i can probably speak some of it but reading and writing i don't need it right so it's it's the skills and the valorization they kind of all go hand in hand too Yeah, I think it's also important to um uh, to point out uh, individual differences. Um you know, every every person is going to unless there's something wrong with with the child, they're going to acquire first language, be completely fluent, you know. And second language acquisition is is different. Some people are just really really good at languages and they're going to pick them up. And we have one of my colleagues here right now, um Professor Yellen, uh you know, he's a perfect example of someone who just acquires languages like like easily. You know what I mean? I'm not that person. um but you know i i should say i started studying french when i was 14 i was beyond the critical period which we talk about for and i think the the most important thing to keep in mind is that the hardest thing you know after puberty really is the accent to to get rid of your accent right unless you know some people just have a, a you know an easier time with that so is it so horrible to have an accent as long as it's If, as long as you're pronouncing the words correctly and you're using you know the language effectively so you have a little accent that's part of your that's part of your identity and i think you know as we see with english i mean there's so many speakers of english who have different accents it's it's something to embrace you know we don't need to become french we don't need to become parisian uh, as nice as it might be I, my colleague from france i love to listen to her speak um but you know we all i mean we all do what we can and i feel like you know i yes it would have been nicer to start earlier but i don't think it was a problem to start that late so don't be discouraged is what i'm saying you can start learning a language as an adult you you know you, i i feel that it's a great idea to take language classes formally from experts who have set up their classes in a way that you will get the input that you need and you will learn it's not just a matter i mean this is sort of leading to maybe to your, to a later question so maybe i should uh, hold off about what is comprehensible input right but um but my point is that you know you don't know whether you're going to be that that star language student and if you have the opportunity to live in a culture and you're motivated to use it um then you're going to succeed. I mean we see people in the United States who have stayed very much in their own communities. You know, you have the stereotype of, you know, the Italian immigrants in New York who just spoke Italian to each other all the time, you know. And that was a choice, right? And and that's fine. And but other, you know, and then their children were completely fluent in English, you know. So um all about what you want to do with with the languages is 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 really important. So I think 
Well, yeah. and I think I think that brings us back too to what Gustavo was saying originally, which is, you know, that that desire to communicate with other people, which is really the crucial thing, right? I think, um, I, I think, and, you know, and I was saying, you know, West African dialect versus, uh, you know, Parisian dialect. Uh, but the thing is, if you're communicating and you're communicating to the people that you want to, that's really the critical thing. Um, and maybe it's not, you know, perfect or it's not the prestige dialect, but, you know, in linguistics, we don't care too much about that anyway. Like we like all the dialects. So, uh, and, and also, I, again, this is probably anticipating uh, another of our questions, but thinking about input. Um, so, so one thing from first language acquisition and, and I'll, 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 you know, uh, Professor Bourens and, and Professor Mahatra can, can jump in here uh, or any of the other faculty on the, on the call. Um, it's really important that it's live, right? For, for first language acquisition, recorded input is not input, right? If you set a child in front of a television or you have them listening to a radio or listening to an app, zero outcome comes from that until they are about five or six years of age. And at five or six, I can tell you, they are already fully fluent in their mother tongue, right? So the only way they can acquire is to hear it from real people, right? So I would, I would say real people are in the classroom or other friends who are speaking it. Um, but you know, whatever the latest app is that's trying to teach, uh, it's, a, it's a cool parlor trick, but it doesn't actually get you to full fluency. You really need human engagement for that. There's, and again, I'm not sure about the second and third language acquisition research, but for first language acquisition, there's something that triggers the brain and it doesn't even have to be language directly addressed to you. It can be that you're overhearing people in the, in the context. That's what's triggering your brain to fast map the words, fast map the, you know, the ways that they sound and so on. So yeah. anyway, I'm just super excited about that idea of input. And, and like, you know, uh, like uh, Professor Bourne said, you know, it's about, it's about, you know, connecting to other people. Um, and I love Professor Mahatra, you know, giving all of the age ranges, that's exactly true. And I would add in the 10 month reorganization, right? So when babies are, are 10 month old, they have this huge pruning that goes uh, through the, uh, well, basically through the neural networks from an acquisition standpoint, what that does. So, so babies are able to absorb all sounds of all the world's languages until about 10 months of age. And at 10 months, they prune so that they only then focus on what they're hearing in their immediate context, right? So there's research that shows if you hire a nanny for your baby who speaks Czech, uh, even though you, none of, you know, no, nobody in your household speaks Czech, if the Czech nanny is using Czech to the baby, um, and then maybe, I don't know, you know, you move away or whatever, you lose your Czech uh, nanny a year later, that baby then grows up in high school, college, decides to take Czech they can sound fluent a lot easier than somebody who never heard that, right? So it's like the brain is this huge sponge, uh, you know, taking everything in prior to the critical period, and especially really early on when it comes to things like accent. Sorry, I could go on forever about this. So I'm going to stop so we can move on to another question. No, I, I, I think that was like super cool, especially because, so I think what, what we can get from that is, is when you're young, the question is about survival, right? Like you are going to learn your first language. I think that's, that's, we can't uh, uh, go um, against that. And then, uh, and what you brought up towards the end in terms of when the child is being uh, exposed to different languages as, as, a, as a young kid, 
does it would it really matter like can the um, the child's parents talk to the talk to the child in many different languages or would it be technically best if the father talked in one language mother in the other and then the nanny in the other so that the child would like associate each you know um each language with a specific person maybe that can like would help in then not getting that like mixed up or or is that even yeah it doesn't seem like there is an issue uh so so babies who are raised in multilingual contexts uh generally are slightly slower uh than monolingual babies to acquire the language within the first about 12 months or so and then they just <laughs> Like there are so many benefits to the brain of being born multilingual or bilingual mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, cognitive function, logic, right? All of these other great things, creativity, understanding of language, metaphor, and so on. I mean, the list is huge, right? Isn't uh, it to prevent you from getting Alzheimer's? They're saying that people yes. who are, are bilingual are less likely to get Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, all of these huge benefits. And, and as far as I, my understanding of the literature is um, that, you know, whether a baby is getting that input from like one person, one person, one person, or from a mix of people, it doesn't matter. I would suggest that uh, it, it may be better if the baby is getting it kind of across the board from all speakers, if that were possible. That's not always possible. Um, because as Professor Mahatra uh, mentioned, it's it's quite likely that a child will com compartmentalize a bit and say, oh, it's only grandma and grandpa, but nobody else who speaks this language to me. I get to where I can understand, but I'm still going to respond in this other language that I know they have, right? So so babies like like us as adults are very efficiency driven, right? They don't want to do more work, even if it's like, you know, brain work uh, than they have to do. So uh, So my husband and I, my husband's fully fluent in French, having lived in France for many, many years. Uh, and we thought, you know, we'd raise our twins uh, bilingual with, with French and English. It turned out we're just lazy slobs and don't speak <laughs> enough French with them. Uh, but their accent is still very, is still very good now that they're, they're actually, you know, they're taking it in school and stuff now, right? So uh, when they say things, I think just because they heard it in the environment, like they're, they're right on. And we, you know, we have French yeah, in a variety of different uh, ways around our house to try to in in encourage that, so. That's really interesting. And uh, Professor Yellen put put in the comments here that, uh, that uh, adults, they have sort of this mm -hmm. advantage mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, like, because when we think about it, we don't give the children benefit of the doubt because they've been exposed to the language for th like tens of thousands of, hours and we're trying here to be fluent in like a, a month <laughs> six months right and so i think that's uh when we think about it in, in in that sense also uh but yeah possibly we can we can even talk about now uh since we we touched on comprehensible input and s sort of that go ahead with yeah with, with that um, question. Yeah, since it got brought up, I thought it would be a good transition to get into this now. Um, so what's comprehensible input and does language learning depend on it? I can just start and then you guys can jump in. Um, so one thing, just taking it from what Professor Littlefees was saying earlier. Um, so in general, humans have this, this need or desire to be part of a community, right? And language learning or language acquisition is often driven by that. So 
whichever community you want to be part with, you will be motivated, in, you know, internally motivated to pick up the language. And babies have that because they, you know, they, they have people around them, they're part of that community. So pick, they pick up the language that helps them connect with their surroundings. Um, so, uh, you know, a couple of examples that we all probably would have. So when we go and visit a place for like six months, you know, the, 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 the need to just connect to people, the need to communicate with others helps us learn much more than, you know, we would otherwise in a, you know, a non-derived way. Um, so uh, well, it depends on who you ask this question. From a theoretical point of view, it seems that, you know, if um, a, a comprehensible input would be something that, you know, a child could or a, a learner could relate to and help that person or the learner to, you know, become part of a community. So in bilingualism, for instance, uh, a, a question that often arises is how much, how much bicultural do you need to be to become bilingual? Right? Does it help when you culturally adapt to something that you also, you know, feel some sort of a connection and you pick up the language faster? Uh, in general, what is also seen that people who are good at language learning in general are those who are exposed to multiple languages at a very young age. So your brain, as Professor Littlefield said, is more like a sponge. So it has opened up in some sense. So if you are already know two languages, your language learning later on will be much faster because your brain already knows that there is variation that exists. And, you know, it's, it, it's statistically anyways good. So, you know, when a child from birth to 12 months is been exposed to two languages, it's like, you know, your brain is kind of building up two systems already. So because it knows variation exists, it's, you know, it's quicker to adapt to newer things. Um, in general, um, in second language and also third, fourth, whatever language you do, it, for me, at least whatever I have read from the literature is, you know, the sense of connection is a very important one. So you connect to the input if you connect to the person or the community which provides that input. The, the input needs to be meaningful. And so in other words, you can't just plant a, an adult in front of a, a radio and say, listen to this, here's the input of you know, Swahili and you're gonna pick it up because you're not, right? It's just gonna, you're never gonna make any sense of it. But being in Kenya and having to interact with mm -hmm. people, um, so the, I keep on stressing this interactive you know, piece, but also having it be meaningful. So in other words, having props, for example, that's what, you know, we do in the classroom. So you'll learn the vocabulary because you connect it with the objects or you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's really, really important. And the idea of building on what you already know. So, yeah. you know, when you're, when you're providing, you're structuring, when we teach, we're structuring the input in a way that we're building on what students have already studied and what they can already and adding things slowly in a meaningful way, having them engage with it in a way that they're going to remember it, right? And then recycling, recycling, recycling. It's really, really important. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's basically, I mean, if you're interested in this, I mean, you can read, you know, Krashen um, is probably the best place to start. Um, Stephen Krashen, you know, he had this whole theory about, about input and that's how natural, the sort of the natural approach to language teaching mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, they would try to teach languages the same way that you would learn a first language, just give lots and lots of input, structure it, et cetera, et cetera. But the piece that, that is much more important today is, you know, in the communicative language teaching framework is the idea of the, the back and forth. And, you know, you don't just go, teacher doesn't just go into the class and talk to at students. They talk with the students and the students mm -hmm. 
with each other to accomplish certain tasks, right? And so that's how we teach languages today. We don't go to the board and conjugate verbs. <laughs> no, you know, there, there are people such as Bill Van Patten, who is one of the leading people in second language acquisition. You know, he really doesn't, he'll say things like grammar doesn't exist. There's no point in teaching anybody grammar. Now, I take exception to that since I, <laughs> I do a lot of work on grammar. But, but his point is that, you know, if you're, if you're acquiring a language, you know, if, if, if everything is structured in the right way, that students will pick it up. He'll say in English, we don't think about, oh, how am I going to, you know, well, which, you know, we're not thinking about the parts of speech. We're, we're just, it just turns out we have a grammar that we've developed, you know, in our head, but we don't know exactly how to explain what it is. So, um, you know, as adults, however, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this, we have a desire to know what the grammar is, right? We wanna, we wanna understand, well, I wanna, especially someone like me, you know, like I, I, if I'm learning a new language, I wanna understand how all the grammar is together, right? And that's, that can be a disadvantage and that can be an advantage as an older learner, right? Because we have all these cognitive skills that like as, as Professor um, Yellen was saying earlier in the chat, you know, we have all these, you know, skills that, that a child doesn't have, right? So, you know, that, that's not a terrible thing to bring that in as well. So. Yeah, and if I can jump on there too, Dr. Borns, um, that, uh, you know, there, I think with, I, I mean, I, I feel like it is super important to, you know, like we're saying, like the, in my mind, the ideal is to be in, a, in an environment where you're surrounded by the language in, in real life, right? Because that causes those interactions that you need. But I, I, I do think it is important to have somebody as a guide, as a, like a language guide, right? A, a professional who can help you um, because otherwise you run the risk of fossilizing errors over time uh, that you will miss, right? Because you're a non-native speaker and you think, oh, I communicated, they got it, great. All right, and at some point that's right. But if your aim is actually like full fluency, uh, like me in French, I know there are a few things that I still do really terribly wrong, even though people can understand me, right? It's like, well, at some point I give myself a break. I'm like, yeah, I'm having a great conversation. But the other part of me is like, I wish people would tell me when that was wrong. So maybe I could fix it, right? So I think really to have, you know, professionals working with you as well as being in the context would be the ideal. Uh, but yeah, that, that kind of thing. And I wanted to, if I have a moment, I wanted to cycle back to uh, Professor Yellen's uh, comment as well. I totally agree. Like, I think um, there are so many factors in second language acquisition that can override that innate um, kind of bias or, or, or mental uh, capacity that we have as babies, right? I mean, that, that is the miracle of being a human, right? That we can acquire language so easily without effort, without instruction. Uh, as, a, as a first language or a mother tongue. Um, but adults do have the advantage in that they already speak one or more languages to build on, right? And this goes a little bit to your question on, you know, if we already speak one or two languages, does it get easier? Uh, I think the answer to that is unequivocally, yes, it gets easier. Um, if I just take myself as an English speaker learning French, I thought, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Masculine and feminine nouns, this is like impossible. Well, when I went to learn Fula, there are 27 of those that you have to learn, right? That made French look like nothing. I had a 50-50 chance with French. Now in Fula, I've got to guess one of 27, uh, right? That gets, that's insane. And then I started learning Mandarin for a while, a Spanish in there for a little while as well. And each one that I was able to build on, I could say, oh, this new language, it has this from this and this other thing from that. And I can kind of triangulate and figure out what my strategies are. 
Um, and then also adults are really smart. Like we have a lot of world experience, right? So if we don't know a word for something in a second language, you know, or first, second year speaker, or even me now, you know, I, I've been speaking French for quite a while. If I get stumped with a word, I have a lot of strategies for how I can overcome that. Like maybe I'll describe the thing or I try to find a synonym or, right. And, and babies don't have that, right. They, they sometimes make up really cute novel things, but we don't always understand them. Adults have a much better, um, kind of, uh, you know, chance of being understood because of those strategies that we have uh, as we're acquiring a language. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that's exactly right. I think um, adults are, are very capable of learning a second language. Uh, and there are many ways we can overcome, uh, you know, the potential deficits for late acquisition. Uh, but I think it's, it's ironic to me <laughs> if we're interested in like second language acquisition in schools, why do we wait so long to uh, get our school, you know, our children in there, right? So I'm thinking my kids here in, in Massachusetts, Massachusetts, it's pretty progressive with its educational policies. But the first time they ever took a language class, well, it wasn't until first grade, you know, uh, you know, outside of what we're, we could do in our home. So uh, even by then, you know, and having, you know, Spanish for 20 minutes, once a day, uh, three or four times a week, like that's not enough, right? If we want to take it seriously, they should be hearing Spanish, well, I would have liked to have seen them in a fully bilingual uh, context, right? Where they're getting a lot of Spanish and a lot of English at the same time. So I don't know. There's a lot out there. There's just so much on this topic. Um, just to add to what Professor Littlefield was saying, I mean, I mean there are you know, incredible amount of cognitive benefits. So one thing for sure, if as an adult, you learn a second language, you become better at problem solving, you become better at decision making, uh, you get better at memory, because, you know, yes. if learning a second language requires memorizing lexical items from other language, uh, learning a second language requires you to learn how to shift gears from language A to language B, right? So one is a stick shift, another one is automatic. So yeah. You, know, you develop more skills. Right? It's just that you are you are adding more stuff. So it has a huge yeah. number of cognitive benefits. Yeah. Uh, and it also has a lot of social benefits in general. So it's kind of believed that, you know, when you know a second language, uh, you're better at understanding an alternative point of view. You become more yeah. open-minded because, you know, you kind of know, well, there is a world that exists, which is different from my own. You know, I have lived my life for 20 years in a world where everybody spoke yeah. in X ways. And now... I've been exposed to a world where everybody spoke, speaks differently. So I'm, I'm becoming more open. So it has social, emotional benefits. Um, also, learning a second language not only improves your IQ, it also definitely helps you in your EQ, right? You become yeah. you know, better, you know, become sensitive. You are more empathetic. So, so there are a huge number of not just cognitive, but all kinds yeah. of benefits that you have. Uh, and for the memory and the problem solving brain stuff, that's why it pushes Alzheimer's and all the other things, at least for, you know, five years to 10 years, if you learn a second language. Mm -hmm. uh, earlier, the better, but, you know, there is human mind yeah. is always capable of, you know, just exploring new things. It's just a different mechanism. Yeah. So you acquire and then you learn, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's just a different process, but you can always learn. Another thing that plays an important role is, how similar the language is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? If I'm, for instance, an English speaker, it will be easier for me to other learn other languages which are similar in structure. You know, like Professor Littlefield, I would struggle a little more with Fula as opposed to French, because you know English is very similar in terms of structure. So one thing that at least I mean I have been I've not been in language pedagogy, so I'm sorry I couldn't, you know, uh, I cannot give much input. But whatever I have learned from literature is that. 
instead of focusing on the differences between languages, mm -hmm. if instructors or pedagogy focuses more on the similarities, mm -hmm. learning is better. Um, and as Professor Littlefield was saying, there are multiple ways you could do it, right? So if in a class there are speakers of 10 different languages, if you could just, you know, do a lot, lot more peer learning and then, you know, as a teacher, your job is more like scaffolding, then learning is a very, you know, very different and more, I don't know, collaborative as well as more special um, thing that happens in the classroom. So there are different ways, you know, from a pedagogical point of view, you could do the thing, but Professor Bones, I'm sure, knows much more. <laughs> <laughs> better than what I'm knowing. I think that, you know, I, I love what you were saying about empathy, you know, mm -hmm. and how it, it just makes you, you know, gives you an understanding of, of what other people go through to learn your language. Um, you also, there also have been studies about, you know, how learning another language, you take on another identity. As mm -hmm. well. And I think all of us who are bilingual, you know, realize that, you know, you just feel very differently when you're speaking one language mm -hmm. or the other and you have a different personality. And, um, and that's sort of a, you know, that's sort of a, a cool thing, a fun thing. Um, so. I wouldn't ask though, because there, like, you you all said that there's so many benefits in learning a second second language, uh, and I, I think that most people here can 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 say that yeah, like why not, right? You can, you know, there's the uh, brain benefit in terms of maybe improving memory overall and, and that kind of thing, and also meeting people from different parts of the world. But like, why, why do so many people have sort of this bias against learning languages? Like, I, I, I just feel like people usually, uh, they, either, they either start learning and then they back, up, they back off, even though there are so many amazing things that come from uh, this process. And so why, why do you all think, uh, I'm sorry. I I just, yeah, Professor Littlefield, I see you're, just, you're excited know, for this question. I know, I know. It is, let me just say that this is not a universal <laughs> global issue. <laughs> if you have ever traveled to another country, this is not a problem, right? It's really strong in the United States and other English-speaking countries, especially um, but I mean, if you just walk along a road in Paris or even Southern France, you're going to hear like all sorts of other languages, Africa, most kids are at least try, if not quadlingual by the time they're four or five. Uh, so, so this is a really strong American bias, I, I would argue. Uh, and I'll let my colleagues get in here, but I think there are a variety of reasons why that is, but it is super strong here in the United States, right? Uh, to, to the degree where we give lip service to second language acquisition and we say, oh, you need to have it to get to college, take a couple of years in high school. And people are like, check, got that done. But that is not true language acquisition, right? Um, I, I, anyway, that's, that's, my, that's my two cents worth. Let me let my colleagues jump in here. Um, I think it's more of a sociopolitical thing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. language thing. I mean, um, you know, in, in majority of the cases, you know, one language phenomena is kind of tied up with unification of the country. Um, you know, so uh, within United States, there were like, you know, earlier they were like sink or swim. You come here, you learn English or you sink. That's it. That there's there's nothing else in between. Although, which is which is very ironical because you know in America every household has some version of bilingualism existing in it. And so it was kind of very ironical that everybody is bilingual, kindish, and still you know you want everybody just force them to become more of a subtractive lingual, saying, yeah. hey, you know too, but just you know forget about this. 
Uh, and, and you cannot blame everything on the political social thing too, because um, until 1960, especially during 1940s, 1960s, there was this huge wave of political backed research, which showed that bilingualism is bad for the brain. Bilingualism is bad for education, <laughs> right? So this, this went on for almost two decades where multiple studies were published saying that, hey, if your child knows two language, it's bad, they, they do bad, um, you know, in terms of their school. And, and, and then there were a lot of loopholes, uh, primarily A, because these kids were mostly Spanish speaking kids at home, mm -hmm. which were tested on English, you know, when they just joined school. So of course, if you are testing them on English and English is not their language, they're not gonna do well in that, right? It has nothing to do with some kind of a cognitive deficit of bilingualism. It was about, you know, wrong testing. Uh, but it then it kind of at that time, education policies were shaping up. So that research kind of influenced education policies. And unfortunately, we haven't seen much change in education policy since then. Right. It, it has been pretty consistent with that. So um, although I mean, recent changes have been brought up. So you have English emergent classrooms, you have mm -hmm. transfer English language classrooms, even in elementary and middle school. Uh, but they've kind of more about, you know, letting the child, which who is coming from a different background, different language background, to just slowly remove that language from them and, you know, put English on. You know, it's, it's more like a transition from your home language to English. And as we talked about uh, at the very beginning, valorization plays a huge role. So if a child is you know, looking at the teachers, looking at the peers and saying English only in this class, they kind of slowly start valorizing thing that, you know, Okay, this is the language that I need to learn to survive. If I don't, then I'm gonna, you know, be left behind. Uh, especially with the cognitivism too, um, the kind of you know public opinion that you get is when my child is young, I want them to pay attention to science and math. Why would I want them to burden with another language? Right? That that's something. So learning another language is more like a burden to the brain which actually is not, it's actually the opposite. So if you learn a second language, you do better. At math, right? it's, it's kind of you know, make your child learn a second language so they can do better at math and other things. But you know, it, it's, it's kind of a social, political, cultural thing. So as Professor Littlefield said, you step out of go uh, you know, other side of Atlantic, it's a different story altogether. So yeah. it depends yeah. on what well, and just, just to kind of springboard on what Professor Mahatra is saying, and I see uh, Professor Yellen has a, a comment there. I was thinking as Professor Mahatra was speaking at exactly that same time between the 1940s and the 1960s until William LaBeouf came out and studied uh, African-American English vernacular. Uh, it was essentially thought that young African-American children could not speak. Literally, there is research where they say, I try to study these children, but they do not speak. Which, right, that is just not true at all. But people were so biased in what they wanted to find and what their beliefs were about language had to be only one particular dialect that they couldn't see what was really happening, right? That African American vernacular English is actually a really incredibly complex uh, variety and actually has many roots uh, going back to West African languages that came over uh, because of the. Um, well, unfortunately, the, the trade in, in enslaved peoples. Uh, and so, yeah, so I think it is largely political. Um, and even here in Massachusetts, which again, I think is a fairly a front running uh, state with regard to education, uh, even here, education of um, immigrant children and, and bilingual children came down to be a political uh, law that was passed. 
um, where it, it used to be we had additive bilingualism in our classrooms, which is really what should be. Uh, and because of this law, do you guys remember when that passed? It was maybe, now it's maybe 10 years ago. Um, but it was, it basically made it subtractive. Immigrant children at this point coming to the state have one year, one year to attain English, and then they are immersed in a full English classroom. And if you guys are like, you know, remember back when you were 16 or 17, like you can't do that in a year. And on top of that, you're never going to learn math or physics and English if it's your second language and you were just submersed for a year, right? So, so most of those children end up dropping out of high schools, right? And, and it's similar, ah, anyway, yeah, it, it has to be additive bilingualism, right? I think there's no doubt in the literature about that. Um, yeah, anyway, so I just wanted to bring those two comments together because I think that's, that's exactly right. It, it's very political. Uh, just mm -hmm. to add what Professor Littlefield was saying, I mean, in the, so now maybe we, we don't have as much as dialectalism, but accent vice is still there. So uh, you know, yeah. on a personal level, I know at least two to three families who came to me because they, they thought I'm a linguist, so no, I know all about language education, which I don't. So um, they came to me with the worry because their child was speaking in a non-American accent. They were advised speech therapy because mm -hmm. it's considered as a pretty serious language deficiency if you're not speaking in American accent, uh, which kind of puts a lot of pressure, kind of stress on both the parents and the child. The child will think I'm not speaking American English accent. I have a deficiency, which is like, which is very serious for a kindergarten, for instance, right? So all this, as Professor Littlefield was saying, this is, there's a lot of social pressure on the child himself, right? So there's all kinds of things that are coming from outside home. So even if at home, the parent, everybody's an immigrant in some way or the other, right? So languages are there it's just that nobody wants to carry it forward saying that i won't be able to survive in the system so it's kind of you know, survival of the fittest yeah unfortunately wow that that those are actually things that i've never stopped to think about or actually even uh some some of the things at least i haven't uh, even even heard and they can scale to be like really to, to hinder right i think like language learning and um all of that. And I mean, I think in the interest of time, um, we do have a last question. And I think, Cash, would you would you like to ask this, this powerful question? <laughs> yeah, of course. So this is uh, mostly directed at our podcast listeners. If there's um, something that all of you could share with our listeners, just as some advice in language learning, anything, any like takeaway. What is your message? Learn another final message. And learn another language on top of that. And, yeah. And study, you know, one of the questions you had originally said, what's the best way to get into a new language? I, I really feel that formal education, you know, classes are the best way to start. And it's not, I mean, you know, the apps have their purpose, but not alone, because they don't give you the interaction and the meaningful uh, exchanges that you need, right? Yeah. But they can help you. I mean, we could go on and on, and I don't want to keep going on and on. Um, but I, I want to say that, you know, learning vocabulary lists, that's great. But if you're not yeah. using them, yeah. it's not going to help you. And words by themselves are not going to get you too far either. Mm -hmm. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So there's just, you know, 
give it a shot in a class, then get yourself immersed in the culture. And you know, you can't, languages are so conditioned by the cultures as well. And so it's very important to, to find a way to get over there. And, and you, know, you saw how Professor Littlefield picked up this entirely new language. Um, it happens and it will happen. And you shouldn't be discouraged just because you're older, you're not a child anymore. You will learn it, um, especially if you're very motivated. Yeah, I, I agree. I was going to say my advice is go for it. Like if there's a language you're curious about, go for it and learn it. I mean, there are, even though we keep like focusing on the brain and the early ages of, of life, right. And how powerful that is. Cause it is, it's like this miraculous thing that happens, but there are studies of people in their eighties who take up a language and do fairly well. They're probably not going to sound as Okay, I can almost guarantee they're not going to sound as native-like as if, you know, a, a child had heard the language at age one or something like that. But they can, you know, go back to Italy and talk to their, you know, family members they haven't ever seen before. Y go for it. Like, we're never too old. Never too old. Um, you know, apps don't have a human factor. And language is a very human thing. Until you interact with other people, you know, on a human level when it comes to language, apps are not gonna help. Apps might help you practice them and become better, yeah, yeah. but you have to start with the human factor when you're learning a second language. Absolutely. I think this really supports our, our main message, our main like purpose, which is to help people, help people that at least uh, listen to what we have to put out there, uh, become more global citizens, right? And I, I think like, I think this is sort of the real purpose. It's, it's not simply like interested in learning about a different culture, just for the sheer fact of like being of wanting to, but actually what that really means. And yeah, languages, I think, and this is something that that Cash actually was talking to me about, uh, like a few days ago. Um, which language is like a key and just like uh, Professor Zian uh, also commenting about mm -hmm. that the languages is a key to open many, yeah. many doors, right? And I think that it's easy to, to, to picture this in the like theory, yeah, sure. But once you experience it, you, I don't think you ever go back. You'll enter that door and you'll, you'll, you'll be completely <laughs> changed. <laughs> Yeah, it's also sort of like giving it a personality and seeing like each language as a different lens and looking at the world in a different perspective, which is sort of like what all of you touched upon. So Professor Bourne, Professor Littlefield, Professor Malhotra, thank you all for making this happen. Um, yeah, thank you so much for organizing this. It's, it's just fun to, to meet new colleagues and, and, uh, and meet like-minded like people. Uh, it's... Uh, Seems like it's few and far between some days, so it's uh, it's really nice to meet everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast. Hope you all enjoyed and found value in the content. Our mission is to educate, motivate, and build world citizens by breaking one language barrier at a time. If this speaks to you, you won't want to miss out on what we have coming up. Feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions or topics you want us to discuss, or if you'd like to contribute to the podcast, we would love to have you on the show. So don't hesitate to reach out, our contact information is in the description. Up next, we interview more experts to discuss accents and pronunciation.